Hey everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm Brandon David, your host. Thanks for joining us. If you listen regularly or maybe just by the name of the podcast, uh, you know that we normally talk about investing. This week is going to be a little bit different. We have Dr. Donald Abrams from UCSF, uh, and we're going to talk all about medical cannabis research, how it gets funded, the politics involved, uh, as well as the diseases that it could potentially alleviate or even use that big word cure. Uh, we talk about HIV, his work with cancer, uh, and a number of other studies that he's performed over uh, several decades. It's a fascinating story. I learned a lot. You're really going to like it. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Dr. Adams, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, really excited to kind of dive into what most people think of how cannabis can help your health, and then uh, maybe the, some realities around how it can actually help your health. Uh, but I think it might be useful um, if you just start by giving us a, a little bit of your background, um, and then, you know, kind of what you're working on day to day today. Okay, good. Thanks. I am a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. At the beginning of my training, to be a cancer specialist back in 1980s, suddenly AIDS came out of the blue and we didn't know what it was or what to do about it. Uh, so I became sort of interested in alternative therapies, even when there was no conventional therapy to be alternative to. And then when we got conventional therapy for HIV, I said, oh, this isn't very good. So I wrote all the chapters in all the AIDS textbooks on complementary and alternative medicine and HIV. Okay. And then in 1992, Years and years ago, Rick Doblin, the president of the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, uh, sent a letter to San Francisco General suggesting that a study be done to confirm the benefits of cannabis in patients with the so-called AIDS wasting syndrome. AIDS wasting syndrome was something that we saw at the beginning before we had any effective treatments for the disease where the patients just developed significant weight loss, diarrhea, fevers, and basically wasted away. And he had seen on CNN Mary Raspin being arrested for baking brownies for our AIDS patients at San Francisco General. Mary was an older woman uh, who was a volunteer of the year for two years in a row at San Francisco General. She used to wheel our patients to x-ray and drop off their prescriptions, and she also baked them brownies and you know what kind of brownies I mean, and she was, she was called Brownie Mary. Well, suddenly in 1992, uh, she was arrested uh, for baking these brownies, and so that prompted Rick Doblin to send a letter suggesting that a study demonstrating the medicinal benefits of cannabis should come from Brownie Mary's institution. Mm-hmm. as if she were our dean. So so I was a child of the 60s, and I said, okay, I can do that. Uh, and so I picked up the gauntlet and started a rather naive attempt to get some cannabis from the government to study in patients with the AIDS wasting syndrome. Mm-hmm. And that was a five-year project uh, wow. because what I didn't realize, and I heard it straight from Alan Leshner, who at the time was the head of the National Institute on Drug Abuse was that NIDA has a congressional mandate to only study substances of abuse as substances of abuse. So my request to study cannabis as a potential treatment for the AIDS wasting syndrome 
fell on deaf ears because they were not allowed to do that. Mm. Yeah. As he as he said, we are the National Institute on drug abuse, not for drug abuse. <laughs> so ultimately, wow. ultimately, I had a little in because in 1996, the AIDS wasting syndrome disappeared with the availability of highly active antiretroviral therapies, particularly the new class of drugs called protease inhibitors. Well, these drugs are metabolized by an enzyme system in the liver that is also the same enzyme system that is affected by and affects the cannabinoids. Mm. So in 1996, I requested funding to do a study to see if it was safe for patients with HIV on protease inhibitors to add smoked cannabis to their regimen. And that study gave me a million dollars and 1,400 of the government's finest 3.96% cigarettes to begin my research career in cannabis. And and why did you decide to go with smokable cannabis as opposed to the brownies that Mary would oh, uh, a very good question. Very good question. When when Rick Doblin first said, let's do a study, uh, he was not, at the time, he's not a clinician. So I sent him the template from the University of California, San Francisco uh, Institutional Review Board. I said, why don't you propose a study? So I thought I'd keep him busy for a while, but a week later he sent me back a proposal to look at three different strengths of brownies over a 12-week trial. And I said, well, you know, Rick, this isn't going to work because – you know, in medicine, we try to have uniformity of the, the substance over studying, and you're not going to be able to have the same brownies for 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. So let's move away from brownies. I see. So, yeah. <laughs> in fact, I don't know any studies uh, that are published uh, that have actually looked at edibles. You know, I, I was a member of the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine 16-member uh, committee, that came out with the book, uh, uh, The Health Effects of Cannabis and Cannabinoids. And we reviewed all of the published literature uh, since 1999 on cannabis, and I don't think that there's anything published. Well, we did placebo-controlled studies or randomized clinical trials, and none of them involved edibles that I recall. Wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's just... It's such how, a massive hole. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, um, and and anecdotally, uh, you know, taking edibles, eating edibles, is a dramatically different experience and effect on the body than than smoking cannabis is. Well, um, interesting that you say that because in the first study that I just described, uh, the safety study, we compared smoking a night a cigarette three times a day to taking. Dronabinol, 2.5 milligrams three times a day, to taking Dronabinol placebo. And what we found is what we know, that when people inhale cannabis, the peak concentration of the tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, is reached in the bloodstream in our study in about two and a half minutes, whereas the Dronabinol THC peak occurred in two and a half hours. And when taken by mouth, the delta-9 THC gets broken down in the liver to another psychoactive metabolite that some people feel is even more psychoactive than delta-9. And that's why people, when they eat a baked product or take stranabinol, get more zonked, if you will, than people inhaling 
cannabis? It is uh, certainly stronger. Um, I think most accept that, even if it's not proven. And that's why very, very chronically ill people often gravitate towards very strong edibles as, as opposed to smoking. Do you, do you find that as well, that they, they prefer that? I do. You know, I, what I tell my patients is that if they want better control over the onset, the depth, and the duration of the effect, that inhalation is probably better than ingestion. But if they find a product that, that works for them, then certainly taking it by mouth or under the tongue or whatever probably gives them a more sustained blood level and requires less dosing than inhalation would. How similar or different is the uh, tincture under the tongue versus eating uh, an edible? Again, this is an area that totally is unknown. I, I think the closest we come is to GW Pharmaceuticals with their products in the Bixamols and Epidiolex where uh, that those are under the tongue whole plant extracts, either one-to-one -one THC to CBD or CBD alone. And they published on the pharmacokinetics of the Bixamols. And as you would expect, it's somewhere halfway between inhalation and ingestion by mouth because when you put it under the tongue, it gets absorbed more quickly, but than swallowing it, but less quickly probably than inhaling it. And then some of that under the tongue gets swallowed, so you have the the same effect as an edible or, or dronabinol. So it's probably midway. But, no, but, again, those pharmacokinetics, as far as I know, have not been published. Wow. Wow. Yeah, a lot um, of unknowns. A lot of do you unknowns. Think that there, do you think there is uh, substantial research that has been done that isn't published? Is that no. why you said that? Or, or no, no. Just, I just, hasn't no. Yeah. I mean, these things are hard. You know, this in this country, cannabis is still a Schedule One substance, meaning that the only legal source of cannabis for research is from NIDA. Mm -hmm. And NIDA has been very responsive to certainly my request to create more potent products, products that have some CBD. And, in fact, Mahmoud El Soule from the University of Mississippi has even produced an oil. <laughs> so, you know, so so they have products, but uh, they are the only legal source. So I can't go to my local dispensary and pick right. up a whole bunch of stuff and start doing research with it. That's not legal yet in this country. Right, right. Why did the University of Mississippi become the sole provider of this? I think most people that no, hear that. I don't, know the, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, Mississippi I mean, is the, the least likely place yeah. <laughs> you would think would be that. And maybe that was the intention. You know, maybe that was the intention. They thought if they made it Berkeley that it would be too successful. I don't know, but that's, uh, I guess that's I don't know. What, I, I'm not yeah. familiar with growing conditions in Mississippi. It sounds like it. Maybe it's, I don't know. I don't. It's not They're not field. good. They're I'm not a simple oncologist. I don't know. Well, I saw, <laughs> I saw on CNN uh, when Sanjay Gupta did Weed Three that yeah. Mahmoud's fields had certainly grown from a, a few stocky plants to a, a very impressive uh, looking, you know, garden. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, look, cannabis can grow a lot of different places, but the very potent cannabis. Uh, and as an extension, the very potent concentrates 
I believe, are really what we need the most research on because that's going to give you the most extreme effects. And, and that type of cannabis is largely grown indoors anyway. Um, uh-huh. with, with lots of very powerful light and controlled nutrients and, uh, you know, a very controlled environment. So um, that, that's the really strong stuff that people talk about today as opposed to the outdoor, which has been around for, for quite some time. Um, uh-huh. Okay, so I think we were in 1996, and you got a million oh, yeah. dollar okay. right. study. What was the result of, of that study? So that study, actually, again, we were looking at the safety of cannabis in patients on protease inhibitors, uh, and we found that there was no clinically significant alteration in the level of the protease inhibitors in the patient's bloodstream. We saw no evidence that the virus level increased in the bloodstream, and we saw no evidence that there was any detriment to the immune system in these ACE patients using cannabis or dronabinol, and in fact, there appeared to be some benefit, especially in those who inhaled the cannabis. And although it wasn't the primary endpoint, the patients on, this was a 21-day inpatient exposure. So the patients were in our clinical research center at Zuckerberg San Francisco General, which was just San Francisco General at the time. And three (laughs) times a day for 21 days, they either smoked, took the dronabinol or the dronabinol placebo. And at the end of the three weeks, the cannabis and dronabinol patients had gained about seven or eight pounds compared to the placebo patients who only gained one or two. Wow. And that's because everybody was rather sedentary, confined to the unit for three weeks, and they did have a refrigerator by their bedside full of food that got locked at 11 o'clock at night. So a lot of access to food for some patients who probably didn't have that access in the past. Mm. So, So we did see weight gain as well. Okay. Why was it locked at night? Just well, because we didn't want people eating all through the night. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, that study at least seemed to curb the side effects, at least, of uh, HIV. Um, no, not, not no? really. I mean, it, no. no, we didn't look at side effects. We just, we just were looking at safety. Really, the primary endpoints were change in viral load, change in uh, levels of the protease inhibitors in the drugs uh, in the bloodstream, and change uh, in the immune system. So it's purely a safety study with the weight as a secondary endpoint. I see. But if they were gaining weight, isn't that a positive sign? I mean, isn't that sort of a a classic? uh, Yeah, but but the the study was not large enough to make a definitive statement that the patients on the cannabinoids gained weight compared to placebo. It was not so-called powered for that as an endpoint. Okay. But it, it was a hint. It was definitely a hint. It was a hint. So okay. what, happened, what happened after that is this, if you can think about it or get your head around it, at the end of the 1990s, the state of California actually had a budget surplus. Mm-hmm. And State Senator John Vasconcellos appropriated $3 million a year for three years to establish a Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research at the University of California. And the purpose of that center was to fund clinicians, investigators at the University of California campuses who were interested in studying the potential benefits of cannabis. And so I actually received four grants 
from the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research, two of which were successfully completed, uh, two of which in cancer patients uh, I never could enroll into the studies, and the funding got taken away, and we can talk about that later. But the first study that we did do that was successful was in patients with, again, HIV who had painful nerve damage or so-called peripheral neuropathy. And first we did a 16-patient pilot study to see if inhaling NIDA cannabis would decrease their neuropathic pain. We, we sort of had an inkling that it would from animal studies of neuropathic pain models that cannabinoids were effective and also from anecdotal information from patients. But in the 16 patients, we did see a benefit. So from that effect size, we calculated the sample size needed to do a randomized placebo-controlled clinical trial. And that was 50 patients, and we accomplished that. And the results of that study published in the journal Neurology demonstrated that inhaling cannabis three times a day was better than inhaling placebo in relieving neuropathic pain. Okay. And in addition to the relieving neuropathic pain, I was working with colleagues from the Pain Clinical Research Center here at UCSF, and they said, gee, Donald, you're studying such a controversial substance. In addition to the patient's subjective analysis of their neuropathic pain, why don't we do an experimental pain model where we create pain on the patient's forearm and we see how that responds to both the cannabis and the placebo. And it turned out that... That sounded yeah, a lot of fun. <laughs> it was a little bit tricky, but, but uh, it turned out that that model responded the same, that the cannabis patients had a superior reduction in their experimental pain compared to the placebo group. So you, you like, pinched them, or how did you create not, this, this pain? No, we, we heated the forearm with a thermode, a piece of hot metal that was uh, 104 degrees uh, for 30 minutes and then applied caps, no, 10 minutes and then applied capsaicin cream for 30 minutes. Uh, capsaicin is the active ingredient in red hot chili peppers. Okay. So, so when you do that, it creates an area of weird feeling and hyper-exaggerated feeling around the rectangle that you can measure with the patient looking wow. off in another direction with a piece of foam and a brush. Mm. And you measure the area around that before and after exposure to the substance you think is reducing pain. Mm. And it okay. turned out that it worked. Yeah, it worked. Yeah. And the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research actually funded about three or four studies in HIV and other neuropathies, and they all came to the same conclusion that cannabis worked and was better than placebo. But I knew that my colleagues were not going to be enthusiastic about a medicine that was smoked as a cigarette. So the second study that I actually completed with the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research was looking at the so-called volcano vaporizer. Uh -huh. This this is a, a rather large, not portable vaporizer uh, created by a... That's a awesome. Yeah, yeah. Say, yeah. yeah, created by a medical device inventor in Germany. And, uh, you know, they brought me the device and asked me if I would study it, and the CFDR picked up on it and said, yeah, let's look at this. So this was the easiest study I ever did because we looked for 25- to 40-year-old 
chronic cannabis users, and we put them in our clinical research center for six days and gave them $600. And on each day, they either uh, smoked or vaporized half of a night of cigarette in three different strengths of THC. Okay. And we measured their the THC in the bloodstream, uh, how high they got, mm-hmm. and the uh, exp- uh, expired carbon monoxide, which is a measure of exposure to noxious gases. And uh, this was a small study because the, the uh, endpoint was really uh, – you know, blood levels of THC, and we found that the vaporizer was as effective as smoking half a cigarette as far as the identical blood levels were achieved and patients experienced the same high. What was actually different was that the uh, smokers had a much higher uh, expired carbon monoxide than those who vaporized. So with that, uh, all of our subsequent studies have used the volcano vaporizer. And I'm often approached by people who say, wait, wait, can't you use our vaporizer? And I said, well, what does it deliver to the bloodstream? Because I know that the volcano is delivering exactly what the same amount that smoking is, but I have not yet seen any data on what any of the more portable vaporizers or vape pens are delivering. Yep. So, yep. so that's another big gap in our knowledge base. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I think we're going to learn a lot about vape pens um, because uh, I've seen uh, there are times where uh, they can get too hot and they even they, they tend to combust just a little bit. So then uh-huh. you have a combination of vapor and a little bit of combustion and, and smoke from it. So, yeah, m- much to be discovered there as well as in all of this stuff. Um, I mean, you know, I just not to throw a, a, any water on the fire, but I'm a little, as a cancer doctor, people have been inhaling plant material for thousands of years, and I'm pretty convinced that I know the risks and benefits of that. I have no idea what it means to inhale oils mm-hmm. and what the long-term health effects of that are going to be. Mm-hmm. I have some concerns. Um, talk about that for a minute, if you would, the, the benefits. Just, I and, think I just did. Well, no, no, I, I mean uh, of inhaling plant matter because that's one of the, the concerns that I have is I, I like flowers, and a lot of people like flowers either in a joint or, or a pipe or whatever. Um, is, you know, how detrimental is that uh, to be inhaling plant matter on a regular basis? Well, I mean, we know from tobacco over the years that that has some – adverse health effects, but I don't think cannabis is tobacco. They have very different compounds, and people don't smoke as much cannabis as people who are smoking a pack or two of cigarettes a day. <laughs> yep. Donald Tashkin at the University of California, Los Angeles, has been funded for 40-plus years to study the effects of inhaled cannabis on pulmonary issues. And basically, if I could paraphrase him, has been quoted as saying, if you're looking for some sort of pulmonary effect to keep cannabis illegal, you really don't have a leg to stand on. Hmm. All he found was that it might increase phlegm and cough and perhaps chronic bronchitis. But in fact, people who smoke cigarettes and cannabis have lower rates of progression to chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And in his piece de resistance study of 1,350 patients with 
aerodigestive malignancies in the Los Angeles Basin, he found that people who smoked a little cannabis actually had less lung cancer than people who didn't smoke anything. Hmm. And that sort of it confirms a Kaiser uh, study from years before uh, that people who smoked only cannabis had lung cancer, less, less lung cancer than people who didn't smoke anything. But I think cannabis has antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and perhaps, perhaps, perhaps some minimal anti-cancer activity that accounts for those results. So, again, that's inhaling cannabis, but not oils or extracts of the plant. Right. Which there is no research or data on. Right. Yeah. Wow. Um, Okay. So I know that you did uh, some more work uh, as it relates to cannabis and opioids, which is a fascinating topic that's that's really, I mean, a scourge in our country right now, the amount of people that are overdosing on opiates. Can you talk about your work uh, a little bit there? So back when the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research uh, first funded me, I mentioned the, the HIV neuropathy. I also got funded to do a study in cancer patients, particularly breast and prostate cancer patients, with painful bone metastases on opiates, because I thought the question of cannabinoid-opioid interactions was very important. I could only enroll two patients in that study during the time that I completed the 16-patient neuropathy pilot and started enrolling patients in the 50-patient randomized placebo-controlled trial, and so the CMCR took away my funds. I decided that this was still a very important question, so 10 years later, I went back to NIDA, and I said, you know, because that first study was to see if it was of any benefit to add cannabis to the opioids in reducing pain. But as I mentioned, with NIDA, they can't fund studies that are looking at therapeutic benefit. So my question to NIDA, one of my so-called Trojan horse studies, was is it safe for patients on sustained relief morphine or sustained release oxycodone to add vaporized cannabis? And that, like the protease inhibitor study was a drug-drug interaction pharmacokinetic study. So I took 10 patients on sustained-release morphine and 11 on oxycodone sustained-release, and we put them in our clinical research center. On the first day, we drew the, the area under the curve, the concentration over time of the opiate, and then we exposed them to vaporized cannabis three times a day And on day five, we drew the curve again. And while we had patients who were there with chronic pain, we also asked them what happened to their pain. So, again, the study was small and not powered for pain as an endpoint. What we saw was the morphine blood concentrations after the uh, vaporization of cannabis actually were decreased, but not statistically significantly. The opiate, the oxycodone concentration stayed the same okay. over the over the course of the study, but at the end of the day, patients reported about a 25% reduction in their pain with the addition of the cannabis to their wow. opioid. Now again, the study was not powered for pain as an endpoint, so that is just a trend 
that warrants ancillary data. Yeah. It warrants further evaluation, but it it did you know make the news and and was an interesting finding. Yeah. Now the the last study I did, uh, I was approached by a mouse scientist from the University of Minnesota, Dr. Kalpnagupta, who has a mouse model of sickle cell disease. Mm-hmm. This is a very painful disease in humans as it is in mice. And what she found was that adding uh, research-grade cannabinoids to these mice uh, decreased their pain, decreased their inflammation, and decreased blood markers of progression of their sickle cell disease. So she came to me and asked me if I would uh, create a human proof-of-principle study to go along with that her mouse work for a grant that she was submitting to the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Mm-hmm. And we did that, and we got funded. We were looking for 35 patients. I think we only completed 25. Uh, sickle cell patients are difficult to uh, hospitalize for two five-day inpatient hospitalizations separated by a month because they have a lot of other life challenges. And we finished that study last year, and unfortunately, the the data is still being analyzed by the biostatistician in Minnesota, which is a little frustrating to me because the study's been done now for eight months, and I still don't have any of the results. So, And how common is that? That seems like a long time. Yeah, it seems like a long time. Um, don't, don't get me started. <laughs> okay. okay. But, but you know, I think as you point out that, gee, you know, this is a big problem in this country, and if we can lower opiate use and abuse by substituting cannabis, which I've seen many of my cancer patients do, then this is something that's quite important. And I think epidemiologic data from states where medicinal and recreational cannabis is available do suggest that there are lower rates of deaths from opiates and lower prescription of opiates as well. Yeah, I think I've read that there's 25% less uh, deaths from opioids in states that have medical marijuana. I think that's the number that I I saw, Um, which is so significant. When you think about thousands of people that are dying every year from that, 25% 25% is a, is a large chunk. Um, yeah. You know, I, I guess this is a, a be extension to that question. Why do you think there is the hesitation? Do you think that um, it's because it's still Schedule 1, or do you think that there is some, I don't want to say conspiracy, but the, the drug companies, the pharmaceutical companies, obviously don't want to, uh, lessen the purchasing power of, of opioids. Do you, how much do you think that plays a, a factor in, in the lack you know, of research and lack of study? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm not a big conspiracy theorist, although I'm married to one. So, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I know that some of the opioid companies are starting to look at the possibility of cannabinoids. So, you know, I think they're going with the flow and they're probably not going to decrease their revenue base that much in the end. I'm not really worried about them. I think I think one of the biggest uh, problems is physicians, uh, not to slam my own profession, but, you know, most of us were trained during the last 75 years uh, of cannabis prohibition. 
you know, cannabis was available as a medicine in the United States up until 1942. And there aren't many of us who are trained, you know, before 1942 that might know how to use cannabis. And then with the Reagans and just say no, uh, you know, we have this whole reefer madness mentality where many physicians are quite fearful, don't know what this is, and don't have a clue as to what the potential benefits are. I give lectures uh, all the time, and I talk about the endocannabinoid system, the CB1 receptor, the CB2 receptor, anandamide, and 2-AG. The CB1 receptor is the most densely populated receptor in the human brain. And I say, how many of you learned about that in medical school? And nobody ever raises their hand. I mean, that shows the extent of cannabis prohibition. Yeah. And in fact, yeah. In and fact, how is – yeah, go ahead, sorry. Well, I just want to do a plug for my husband, Clint Werner, uh, who is a cannabis aficionado. Uh, when he started learning about the endocannabinoid system from me and from others, decided that he needed to write a book to explain okay. this to the lay public. And Clint's book, Marijuana Gateway to Health, How Cannabis Protects Us from Cancer and Alzheimer's, I think, you know, I'm a little biased, but <laughs> it's probably the best uh, lay description of the cannabinoid receptors in the endocannabinoids that's out there. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the fact that my medical colleagues don't know this, and, you know, in my opinion, and, and Michael Pollan said it best, I think the whole purpose of the endocannabinoids and the uh, cannabinoid receptors is to help us to to modulate the experience of pain. So it makes a lot of sense that cannabinoids are going to be very useful in patients, particularly with chronic pain. Um. So uh, how are you received by your peers? When you do these talks, you're very convincing, you're very uh, you know, passionate about the way that cannabis can help us with these things. Does the rest of your colleagues, you know, maybe outside of California, do they think, oh, well, that's that super liberal doctor from San Francisco, or, you know, what, what's the reception like? I don't know. You know, all I get are the, uh, you know, they – uh, for continuing medical education credits, people fill out uh, evaluation forms, and my evaluations are always quite uh, outstanding. Well, I think I that's as good I, of an answer as anything. Yeah, I haven't yeah. really seen any comments that, you know, that commie pinko, you know, whatever, <laughs> fag liberal or whatever, yeah. is just out there spewing in. You know, I think people are very interested to learn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um Okay, so last major topic that I want to dive into a little bit is CBD. Uh, oh, yeah. there, there's this conception, I think, that CBD is this cure-all and it's going to help everybody and it's completely safe and everybody should be taking it, your grandmother should be taking it. And, um, yeah, what, what's your opinion or, I guess, your, your medical opinion on, on CBD? So the answer to that question is I have no idea. I mean, it's... In the review that we did of the published literature for the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, there were a handful of studies in the therapeutic effects of CBD, but none of them were particularly uh, overwhelmingly uh, positive. I think I attribute 
the meteoric rise of CBD into the forefront uh, to, number one, my friend and colleague Sanjay Gupta and his three-part series on weed, where he showed these poor, lovely children with this refractory seizure disorder suddenly stopped seizing when they got two drops of CBD under their tongue. You know, and mm-hmm. and the other is, is a, Clint and I, we each made up a word, and I can't remember which is his and which is mine, but in his book he talked about, I think his is euphoranoia, mm-hmm. and mine is euphoraphobia. And I think, you know, our Judeo-Christian puritanical society doesn't think it's good for people to be high, mm-hmm. which is what happens when you use THC. So if there's something in the plant, such as CBD that is not psychoactive, immediately it gets catapulted to the forefront of the discussion. Mm. And I think that's unfortunate. CBD does not actually complex with the cannabinoid receptors, which is how they do their work. So how CBD works is pretty unclear to me. I I did have uh, an explanation from David Deutsch, who's the guy that inventor that identified the fatty acid amide hydrolase that breaks down uh, anandamide, uh, suggesting that CBD works by blocking the enzyme that brings anandamide from the cleft between the neurons into the cells to be destroyed, so more of the endocannabinoid remains there, and that might be an answer to the question. But but that that being said, I have a lot of cancer patients who benefit from CBD. They tell me for sleep. My friend and colleague, Ethan Russo, who's an ethnobotanist and a neurologist and a cannabinoid expert, says uh, CBD is not sedating, it's energizing. Well, I keep every time I see him, I say, Ethan, all my patients love CBD for sleep. How can you tell me it's not sedating? You know, so, yeah. Actually, I just got a tiny, tiny amount of funding from a, a philanthropic agency uh, to study, to do a survey of patients in three integrative medicine clinics in San Francisco, San Diego, and Chicago, and three dispensaries in those same cities to collect information from patients using CBD-enriched products so that we can find out what it is good for. Um, and what it does, because we don't really know. It, yeah, it's also been explained to me, the so-called entourage effect, um, that you get the most benefit out of CBD uh, in combination with uh, some amount of THC, even if it's small. Um, well, that entourage effect is usually used for describing why you want the whole plant rather than the isolated cannabinoids, because mm-hmm. in addition to the other cannabinoids in the plant, you have terpenoids and flavonoids, which also have medicinal benefits. I see. I see. So, yeah. Okay. Um, so. Kind of a grand question here. Uh, if you had all the funding necessary, unlimited funding, and unlimited patience, and I suppose time, you sound like a busy guy, uh, what what kind of study, what type of study would you like to conduct on cannabis? You know, what, what's the, the big question for you that you'd like to... Yeah, so uh, just to weave that in with one of the questions you asked earlier that we haven't really touched on uh, is this cancer question. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am an oncologist, and I've been an oncologist now for 35 years. And I always say if cannabis cured cancer, I mean, I'm an oncologist in San Francisco, and most of my cancer patients over the past 35 years have at least 
smoked cannabis. If cannabis cured cancer, I have a heck of a lot more survivors today. Mm-hmm. So that's talking about smoking. Well, what about these highly concentrated oils of THC or CBD? That, I think, needs to be studied. But how do you study that? I mean, one of the most painful things for me as an as a oncologist who has an integrative oncology consultative practice at our Center for Integrative Medicine here at the University of California is seeing patients who have waited six months for their appointment to see me who are treating a potentially curable malignancy with cannabis oil instead of conventional cancer treatment, hoping that I'm going to tell them that they're doing the right thing. And, in fact, they haven't. They've screwed up big time letting a potentially curable malignancy become metastatic or incurable. Because I don't think that cannabis is the cure for it. Yeah. I don't think there's any evidence for that. But, again, in this era of active chemotherapy or targeted therapy or immunotherapy for many different cancers, how do we ethically just study cannabis oil, if you will, as a cancer treatment? I mean, I think... The first thing that I would like to do, to be honest, is to look at these highly concentrated oils to see if they're safe with conventional chemotherapy. Because CBD, particularly, the way it works in the plant is maybe by modulating that liver enzyme system that I mentioned earlier so that it either increases or decreases its metabolism of THC. And so that CBD might do the same to chemotherapy agents, either increasing or decreasing their breakdown, which would either decrease their effectiveness or increase their toxicity. And so that is a question that I think we need to answer. But, again, we have so many chemotherapeutic agents that you can't do CBD plus this chemotherapy plus that one plus that one plus that one. So. You know, a lot of brain tumor patients particularly are using uh, these oils, and there's only one chemotherapy really that is most prominent in treating brain tumor patients, and maybe that's what I'd like to do is a study to see if it's safe. Now, they've already looked at nabiximols in a small number of patients with brain tumors getting that chemotherapy agent and found that it may have, in fact, prolonged survival. And that would be one of my goals, too, as well as doing a safety study to see if I can get some evidence that there may, in fact, be a greater benefit from people using. But is it CBD or is it THC or is it both? And that's, I think, what really needs to be studied. So, Or some other cannabinoid. Yeah. Or an oil that's the whole plant extract. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so cancer is is a big – I'm happy that the FDA issued a warning on November 1st against companies that are producing cannabis-based products that they are claiming is, are curing cancer because I think it's irresponsible, there's no evidence, and more research is needed. So today, at best, cannabis is helping – uh, curb the side effects and pain associated with cancer and maybe the treatments, but no evidence that it's actually helping uh, to cure it. Yeah, I'm going to say that. Uh, you know, I've written a number of articles in the oncology literature where I'm very pro 
cannabis for symptom management. I mean, a day doesn't go by that I don't see a cancer patient suffering from nausea from either their cancer or its treatment, loss of appetite. Cannabis is the only anti-nausea drug that also increases appetite. Mm. Depression, anxiety, insomnia, pain. And I can recommend one medicine. Instead of writing, instead of writing prescriptions for five or six different medicines, all of which may interact with each other or with the cancer treatment I'm giving them. And I think that's the bonus. And yeah, no, absolutely. I, I often ask my cancer patients, what brings you joy? And the number of cancer patients who tell me that gardening brings them joy is not insignificant. I think if, if you feel that you're dying or part of you has died, the ability to bring life out of the ground is a blessing. And if you can grow your own medicine, that's very empowering. Mm. Wow. Well, I think that's as good a place to leave it as any. Uh, it's been fascinating. I've certainly learned a lot. Thank you so much for joining us here. My pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for listening, guys. Uh, very important stuff here.